Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Gadget Lab listeners, we've got something a little different for you this week. We're bringing you an episode of Business Wars, a podcast from Wondery. Now, don't worry, this isn't a total bait and switch, because the guests on the episode that we're about to play are, in fact, me and Mike. Hey, now. So Business Wars invited us on their show to talk about, what else? Artificial intelligence. This is actually our second appearance on Business Wars. We were guests on the show back in February. We talked about Microsoft and Apple back then. But now, with... AI taking over our feeds, we thought this was a good opportunity for us to step back and really explain what the heck generative AI is. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) We have been covering artificial intelligence exhaustively here at Wired. And over the past few Gadget Lab episodes, which were about Apple and Amazon and Google, we've been really zeroing in on how AI is changing consumer tech. Now, of course, Business Wars has been covering it too. Their new series is called The Rise of AI, and it's all about the companies now scrambling to become the top dog in the AI industry. We went on the show to talk about what it is like to live in a world alongside so many chatbots and voice assistants and autonomous vehicles and where all this stuff might go in the future. We also did a fun little segment at the end where we discussed some of our favorite television shows and movies that... uh are centered on AI. That's the best part. AI taking over the world (laughs) and whether or not that's going to come true. So enjoy this episode of Business Wars. And at the end, we'll come back and we'll do our regular recommendation segment just as a little treat. I'm David Brown and this is Business Wars. In case you haven't noticed, AI is having a moment, well, maybe more than a moment. After weathering a so-called AI winter and years of upheaval, artificial intelligence is now everywhere, with billions of dollars of venture capital pouring in to build the next big thing. This doesn't mean our world is turning into Blade Runner or going the route of idiocracy. Or does it? Brando's got what plants crave. It's got electrolytes. So wait a minute. What you're saying is that you want us to put water on the crops. Yes. We'll explain that one later, but the advancement of AI has a lot of folks asking questions about the future. What about security and ethics? Is AI getting too big too fast? Here to help us explore some of these matters are Mike Calori and Lauren Good. Mike is senior editor at Wired, the online tech magazine. Lauren is senior writer at Wired. The pair also co-host Wired's Gadget Lab podcast, where they explore the intersection of tech and culture. And today they'll share some of the coolest and perhaps scariest uses of AI that they've seen and try to help us make sense of where all this is going. 
Plus, we'll get into whether some of our favorite movies have accurately predicted life in an AI world. Any come to mind? Stay tuned, because all that's coming up next. Michael Lori, Lauren Good, welcome back to Business Wars. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're really excited. The last time we had you on our show in February, ChatGPT had just come out. We actually asked the bot itself to be our interview guest, but it had another commitment, of course. Uh, only kidding. Uh, has the ChatGPT hype died down since its launch, do you all think? I mean, I remember you even had it write an intro for Gadget Lab as a test, right? How did the listeners react to that? Uh, I don't know if we got any solid feedback from our listeners on that particular stunt, but I can say that we've seen a huge growth in the industry since the last time we talked about it. Um, uh -huh. The makers of ChatGPT, OpenAI, uh, have just been gathering steam. They've also been inspiring a lot of new growth in that space, in the space of not only chatbots, but generative AI. There are just dozens and dozens of companies popping up. We're hearing about more uses for ChatGPT. Uh, it's expanding into enterprise and into consumer products. So yeah, it's just straight up. Uh, so um, one thing I have noticed is that a lot of other people tried to imitate what you did at Gadget Lab, you know, with the, with the AI writing the script and, oh, guess what? That was, uh, <laughs> but I'm wondering what other ways you guys are seeing AI pop up right now in the, in the products and services you both cover at Wired. Uh, Lauren? Are you saying that we're not super hashtag innovative or disruptive? No, actually, over on our I'm pod, not. No, David. no, no. no. Uh, no I, th I, I think y'all have y'all are y'all are forging the way forward. Everyone, what else? everyone has used that gimmick. No, no, no. Fair uh, enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that we've been talking about at Wired for a really long time now, and not just since the introduction of Chat GPT, is that AI has been popping up in our products for a very long time. There were, you know, of course, a lot of advancements first made in artificial intelligence starting around the 1950s and then implementations mm -hmm. of it in very, very specific, very nerdy computer programs for the next five to six decades. But, you know, I tend to think that really around the time the smartphone was introduced in our lives and applications that could utilize machine learning techniques, that's really when things started to change, right? The whole IoT trend or Internet of Things trend has been a part of this, too. So... You know, the idea behind the consumerization of AI is that everything from Facebook or Yelp to the Maps app on your phone to language translation apps to your Alexa smart speaker to even the stability systems and cruise control in your car is using some form of computerized intelligence to crunch tons of data and then predict what you'll want to or need to do next. And that is all I mean, that's all AI. And ex I think that's a really important point, which brings us to why people seem to be so fixated on it right now, why this seems to be a kind of existential moment for humanity to some. Why are folks, um, dare I say, freaking out about AI right now? Well, I mentioned machine learning earlier, which is a very specific type or vertical of AI. I think what we've seen more recently is the introduction of applications that are using what you've probably heard a lot of, you know, LLM, right, or LLMs, large language models, which is a specific type of AI model that has been trained on vast amounts of data and uses uh, deep learning techniques to perform a variety of natural language processing tasks. And so... These models are able to scrape all of this information from the internet and then generate something that feels very human-like. And so I think that is what the latest development is that has people a little bit freaked out about. We can't really tell the robot from the real person. Is that what you're suggesting? <laughs> yes. It's, it's getting closer <laughs> to that. <laughs> yeah. Closer, but we have a cigar. Um, I've, I know I've seen a lot of uh, images that at least strike me as, while interesting and beautiful, there is often something surreal about the image that kind of tips you off to the fact that maybe this was computer generated. And of course, there's been a lot more said and written about how ChatGPT gives you sort of a vanilla version of its answer or response to a query quite often and often gets things wrong. How close are we to the uh, imminent uh, takeover of, of AI? Mm. Mike, GPT, do you want to answer that one? <laughs> I think if you're talking about 
the takeover of AI in the creative industry, like in writing and in making images and in making videos, we're probably a lot closer than we are in other industries. Mm -hmm. um, yes, when you plug in uh, a prompt and you ask it to create like uh, a script for a TV show or you ask it to write a short story or maybe show you a video of butterflies on a mountainside, it's going to give you something that is close enough where you look at it and the person who's reading it or the person who's looking at it will be able to tell you what you asked it to produce, right? And that's relatively mm -hmm. new. That's something that we were not really able to do even a year ago. And I think that the way that these things are accelerating and as the technology continues to improve, you're going to see those results get more acceptable, uh, more realistic. It will quickly, if it hasn't already, reach a point where the results will be basically undistinguishable from something that a human can create themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just more passable when you're talking about fiction or you're talking about a television show or entertainment, right? It's something mm -hmm. that's a little bit more digestible if it's AI created, if it's there's not a human hand behind it. It's when you get to things like the nightly news or your morning newspaper uh, where, you know, absolute correct fact is required that uh, the diciness of the outputs from chatbots and from uh, generative AI systems can be more detectable or they can be a problem. Uh, well, what about some of the cool ways that you've seen AI be uh, put into, uh, into use so far? Has there been a wow for either of you? I had a moment back in March when I went to an AI film festival here in San Francisco at the Alamo huh. Draft House, uh -huh. and this um, this generative AI company called Runway had hosted it, and they were enticing filmmakers, many of them you know budding or unknown filmmakers, to use these image generation tools to make or augment films. One of the filmmakers ended up taking a bunch of his childhood photos putting them into one of these AI image generation tools and asking the AI to augment the photos. Then he showed those photos to his father and recorded his father's reactions and used that as the soundtrack to the short film. And just oh, wow. seeing what an AI did to his childhood memories, I think was really, was really kind of shocking to him. And wow. um, in some cases you can sort of tell that the images had been distorted because the image you're looking at is just really wholly unnatural in some way. Mm -hmm. And other times you're just like, oh yeah, sure. There was a puppy there, right? Because I, as the viewer don't <laughs> right. know the difference, but he would know the difference that maybe they didn't have six puppies in the bathtub or whatever the image was. And I, I thought that was really, really creative <laughs> and really fascinating. And, it, and yeah. I wrote a whole story about what, for Wired, about what that, what generative AI is going to do to our future memories. Yeah. You know, uh, six puppies in a bathtub uh, raises the question, have you uh, come across any of the scary uses of AI? Uh, for me, I would say that the scariest thing is uh, disinformation and misinformation. Uh, people using AI to generate images that look very lifelike of people who we all recognize doing things that they didn't actually do. Um, I mean, obviously, we've got elections happening in this country. We've got elections happening in other markets around the world where uh, disinformation can spread very quickly and very easily. And that, to me, is very scary. Mm. And one of the things I think that's scariest about the technology is the rate of acceleration and how quickly the average person can use it to make something like that. Like there, there's always been some form of misinformation or even propaganda that's being spread um, to get a certain message across, right, to the public. Yeah. But when you think about the, the Nancy Pelosi video that is now fairly well known of where her speech was being slurred and so she was, you know, made to appear intoxicated in some way, that wasn't generative AI. That was just creative editing where her speech was mm -hmm. slowed down. So think about that, but think about now you could theoretically recreate entirely a video like that and do it in minutes, even if you don't have any particular skill set around video editing. And that's the part I think that people are, are rightfully alarmed about. Yeah. Well, AI is obviously a big concern in Hollywood right now, and it's a big part of why both the actors and the writers are striking. And I'm curious from where y'all sit, what is at the heart of the strike when it comes to concerns over AI technology? Mm -hmm. This is a really important 
topic, I think, and very timely. So the Hollywood strike is over traditional disputes like wages and benefits and job protections. But the fight over AI is getting a lot of attention. And I think it's because it feels like the cat is already out of the bag, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, AI has already completely infiltrated movie making, whether that's in terms of CGI or recreating the image and likeness of someone who has died before a movie was completed, or to de-age actors as part of the storytelling. Um, And even, you know, Netflix's infamous recommendation algorithm, that's all AI, right? It's taking these troves of existing data and creating something totally anew with them. So I think that, you know, actors and writers are right to be a little bit nervous right now about this new age of AI. Um, And basically, you know, the actors are nervous because they're saying that the studio's position right now is that the studios want to be able to scan actors' images, you know, pay them for half a day's work, and then create totally new imagery from those database images without informed consent. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents the studios and other employers in Hollywood, they say that, um, you know, they have presented an AI proposal that protects performers' digital likeness, um, including a requirement for consent. But they're they're just at a total stalemate over this. Uh, The Writers Guild, you know, they're nervous too because they want to draw a line around credits. They might be okay with using AI to potentially help shape stories, but they do not want it to affect the credits that are essential to, you know, their pay and their prestige as as writers. So um, there are a lot of different points around this and AI in particular that I think are being worked out. We're seeing the results of that. We are seeing this historic strike happening. You know, this is uh, a situation where there are human beings who've been doing a task for generations who are now standing up to prevent their jobs from being taken away by computers. That is that is literally what is happening. And uh, not only just their jobs taken away, but also, you know, their sort of pride of the work that they do. Like they, mm-hmm. you know, make very good stories. The actors are very good at telling stories with their bodies and with their faces. And when you make a computer do that, it just makes the work feel less human and they don't want to see the work go down in quality. Mike Calore is a senior editor at Wired. Lauren Good, a senior writer at Wired. We're going to be exploring what the scientists, investors, and billionaires are saying about AI when we come back. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Hey, welcome back to Business Wars. We're talking with Mike Calore and Lauren Good, senior editor and senior writer, respectively, at Wired. Uh, you know, the entertainment industry, not the only one with a bone to pick over AI right now. Artists are actually uh, suing some of the AI art generators, claiming that they violate copyright when referencing their works. I guess uh, this begs a question, how much of this stuff is even legal? I, I know you two aren't lawyers, but I imagine this has been pretty interesting to cover, no? <laughs> It's probably legal. Um, you know, there's there's a case to be made that um, uh, an AI-generated image that is produced by a machine that's been trained on the uh, product of a certain artist could be considered a derivative work. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, it's also sort of the same thing that humans do. Like if you are an abstract expressionist painter and you've spent your entire life studying abstract expressionism and you've gone to all the museums and you've seen hundreds and thousands of abstract expression uh, art, then you are going to create something that is sort of along the lines of the things that you have seen, which is how um, an AI, a visual AI is trained. You show it a bunch of images and then it just repeats the patterns that it sees in those images. But I think the big difference here is that those AI Uh, training systems are feeding millions of images in minutes. 
So they're, they're going through these training processes very, very quickly. It's not a lifetime of studying this and thinking about it. It's just, you know, uh, a big bunch of data being chewed up and then spit out by mm -hmm. a computer. Mm -hmm. So what you get is what you put in. And I think the people who are having their stuff put in do have a case for saying that it's derivative work. Have you heard any of the songs that have been created by AI that are supposed to emulate, say, um, uh, artists who are deceased? I think there was a Michael Jackson song oh. that got some steam. And I wonder to myself, okay, does this have artistic merit or not? Is it, is it something that people would actually listen to? We talked about this on the Wired Have a Nice Future podcast, which is my other podcast. So, and we even talked about this with the artist Grimes. But Mike, I do oh, want to hear your cool. thoughts on some of these because <laughs> Mike is a musician who is in three bands outside of his work at Wired uh -huh. and then has some opinions about this. So I do think that these things have a point and I do think they have artistic merit. Um, I might be alone in this opinion, but I think that the artist who sits down in front of a computer and uses these tools to create a song is doing so using like some skill as a songwriter, right? They can make something that actually sounds good and is catchy and then they can play for other people. The problem comes when you marry that with something like uh, commerce or a social media platform seeking attention where the person's like, hey, I made this song. It sounds just like Taylor Swift. Isn't that amazing? And then they mm -hmm. try to monetize that. Uh, then, you know, you get into some sketchy um, territory around uh, is this actually ripping off the work of the artist that you're trying to imitate? I like, though, how Grimes seems to be owning this in a, in a way. No, I mean, sort of outsourcing her AI likeness so that, you know, fans can make their own Grimes songs. And that's an interesting way to, to approach this. Yeah, it's a real, if you can't beat them, join them yeah. approach. Kind of um, seems that way. Yeah. And it, we obviously have no idea how that's going to work out. But one of the things that Grimes pointed out in the conversation is that it still does require skill a little bit to Mike's point, right? Even if it is electronic or they're using synthesizers or whatever that might be. Uh, so computer aided, but not totally computer generated. Yeah. it's In a way, it's an extension of remix culture, which has been around for 50 or 60 years. You know, so artists have been offering these things to the creative community for a while. Now the tools are different and the tools are more evolved and people can do more with them. Huh. Well, you know, as much as AI is accelerating itself, uh, there's a ton of money going into this industry, and, and uh, the green is certainly an accelerant. Uh, talking billions and billions of dollars here. And, and I wonder, Mike, uh, how real is this fear that AI might be getting too big too fast, too quickly? I love this question because I always joke that it's a real privilege to be able to cover the tech industry and its pivot to chatbot era. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much money and so much attention being poured into these tools. And I, I don't know if we're necessarily in danger of it getting too big too quickly. But one thing that we are in danger of is falling prey to the hype. There is such tremendous hype about how all of these tools are going to change all of our lives forever immediately. And uh, that's just not true. Like it, it's going to change our lives a little bit. Uh, maybe at some point in the future. Uh, but there is a lot of big talk around it because people, you know, they really want investors money and they really want you to think that they're changing the world. So I think that's, you know, you kind of have to pierce the bubble uh, and look behind the veil. How many different um, euphemisms can I use here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure ChatGPT could generate a new one for yeah, you. Yeah, you bet. You really let, me, let, me, let me plug that in. Yeah. So is there a, is there a solution or are we going to have to turn to ChatGPT for that one too? Um, mm. Where are the guardrails? Who's mm. creating the guardrails? I would say regulation, except for the fact that uh, our legislative bodies are maybe not as uh, well-schooled in how these things work and how they should be regulated. And I think mm -hmm. you need to really deeply understand both the technology and the market forces behind it if you're going to regulate an industry. In the evidence that I've seen about how they talk about chat GPT and how they talk about uh, personal data, uh, I'm, I'm not convinced that um, we're going to be able to successfully regulate the industry. So I would say that probably a great solution is education. Uh, the more people that learn about this and the more people that study it uh, and learn how it works and what it's capable of, the better. Also, mm -hmm. uh, keep it out of the hands of people who would do bad. But I don't know how you do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good luck with that. Right. Yeah, because I, I don't necessarily think that we can rely on these companies in the private sector to 
regulate themselves. Uh, we know that OpenAI has been making the rounds literally around the world to speak with government leaders and propose regulatory frameworks for AI. And the idea is, look, we want to be a part of this conversation in some ways. We think we can self-regulate, like we know what's best here. But then just <laughs> recently, the Washington Post ran an article about how OpenAI um, had said it was going to ban political campaigns from using ChatGPT to generate political messaging. And then, bam, you know, the, the Washington Post reporter was able to test it out. And there was ChatGPT talking about how to convince suburban women in their 40s to vote for Trump. So, uh, you know, OpenAI wasn't able to regulate itself in the way that it had promised. We tend to find so far that they're not able to adhere to these these promises of, you know, content moderation and self-regulation. Yeah. Yeah. So what should the everyday consumer, how can the everyday person navigate in a world where AI can generate, you know, false mm. stories, ads, images? Yeah, I think it's the same advice that we would give um, anybody who is uncertain of what they would see, regardless of whether it was generated by AI or, or generated by a human being, which is that uh, verify it with a trusted source. You know, um, if you have good news sources that you rely on and if you listen to what the scientists and the researchers are telling you about uh, how misinformation is generated and how it spreads, then you become uh, you you develop a news literacy for this new era that allows you to uh, read and watch things with the appropriate amount of skepticism and knowledge. Mm -hmm. yeah. I do think sticking to uh, journalism brands that you trust can be really helpful in a time like this, whether that's Wired, whether that's The New Yorker, whatever your preferred uh, publication is, give them a try during this election season um, instead of maybe just getting your news from Instagram, which can also be a great source of news because some brands like I think of the Bloomberg quick take videos, those are pretty mm -hmm. clever and they're really informative. Like yeah. people do a great job on Instagram of that too. But but go to your trusted sources because there's a lot of information out there and some of it is not coming from very credible places. Yeah, that's really solid advice. You know, I'm thinking that a lot of listeners may be imagining that they have heard or seen somewhere before all of these concerns, or a lot of these concerns we've been talking about when it comes to AI, and maybe they're right. Maybe they saw it at the theater. Can movies predict the future of AI, did they? When we come back, we'll be taking that up. You're listening to Business Wars. Stay with us. Hey, welcome back to Business Wars. Our guests are Michael Calori and Lauren Good of Wired, who also happen to be, as I understand it, pretty big movie buffs, too. Uh, <laughs> something that struck me about AI is just how prevalent it's been in pop culture. Uh, you know, what role do you think film and TV have played in the public perception of, of AI? Oh, I'll, I have one sentence for you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. <laughs> <laughs> Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that, Dave. <laughs> uh, yeah, how many times have I heard that in my life? Um, so, so obviously you're referencing 2001 Kubrick's uh, Space Odyssey. Yeah, there. I think that's my one of Mike's favorites. It is. So my favorite thing about the role of AI in 2001 A Space Odyssey is that it's evil, right? It It makes a decision to cancel the humans, because the humans are threatening to cancel the mission, and it wants to complete the mission, and it can do mm -hmm. it without them. Mm -hmm. So it kills everybody on board. Sorry right. if anybody has not seen this movie that's been around Spoiler for 60 alert. years. Yeah, yeah. well, there we go. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's it was one of those first uh, films that really came along that posed that question, like, can we trust computers? Computers, at the time the movie came out, which was the late 1960s, computers were being used for um, a lot more things all of a sudden. And we were sending astronauts up into space and a lot of the computer controls were untested at that point in the space program. So there was a lot of anxiety around space travel and around the use of computers. And uh, that movie really captured it. I think it's difficult for us to look at that movie now in that context because computers control so much more. Uh, but it's still the core of it, which is that the computer at some point could decide to make a cold, rational decision that goes against good human morals. That is uh, something that we can all think very hard about right now. 
there have been a lot of movies that kind of riffed on the same theme. Didn't Alien kind of pick up on this a little bit, or am I misremembering? No, you're mm. you're remembering exactly right. Uh, I swear all I remember from that movie is an alien just bursting out of Sigourney Weaver's stomach, <laughs> scarred for life. So the alien never bursted out of Sigourney Weaver's stomach, Lauren. It didn't? No, in the first movie it was John Hurt. It burst out of his stomach. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In the first Alien movie, uh, the alien it, like boards the ship and it's wreaking havoc on the ship. And the uh, the AI on the ship, the android, decides that it would, you know, the mission would be more successful if it was able to uh, return the ship back to Earth with the being on the ship. So it turns against the humans uh, in that movie as well. So yeah, another another one in space where the computer's making bad decisions that kills everybody. You know, we need to talk about one of the most meta pieces of content out there right now. The most recent season of Netflix Black Mirror featured an episode called Joan is Awful. Lauren, you've I understand you've seen it. Uh, can you explain the premise here? Sure. Uh, so Joan is a character played by the actor Annie Murphy. She's a middle manager uh, with, I should note, kind of a bad dye job. She's got this, these like really pronounced blonde streaks of hair on what is otherwise a dark head of hair, which is notable uh, later on. But she's essentially an average citizen. But in the episode, there's this streaming service that looks and sounds a lot like Netflix. It's called Streamberry. And it releases a new program. That is essentially a play-by-play -play of this woman, Joan's life. And she recognizes herself right away because the character in the thumbnail on the Streamberry app has the same bright blonde streaks in the front of her hair mm. and is wearing the same green suit that Joan wore to work that day. So real-life Joan watches in horror as the, you know, the fake Joan on the TV screen, who is played by Salma Hayek, reenacts her days and, like, essentially kind of ruins her life. And then it turns out that... You know, everyone has a Joan is awful like series coming about them. Like ah. the Netflix like service called Stream, you know, Streamberry is mm -hmm. actually able to execute on this because they're using a quantum computer and AI and they pull in these signals from all of our devices and they construct a new narrative about our lives the very same day and then put it up on the streaming platform. And one of the things worth noting, too, is that, you know, Streamberry in the episode is not using the famous actors themselves. They're using their AI likeness. Uh -huh. And that's a plot point as well. The fact that I'm standing here right now means that Source Joan already stood here in reality. So it doesn't matter what I want because the events that this is based on have already happened. What a lovely bedtime story. <laughs> so when we talk about custom content, is this really where maybe AI's is going more immediately? I mean, most importantly, if everyone gets their own content, what, what does that mean for the recommendation section of Gadget Lab? And how can you <laughs> well, recommend TV when it's only made for you? I mean, that's exactly right. When I think about the Jonah's Awful episode in particular, it is like personalization to the millionth degree. Yeah. Because what we've been promised by some of these AI systems over the past decade or so, I would say, is this idea that um, all of the algorithms are working on behalf of us to serve us more personalized photos that we want to see in our memories albums or personalized, you know, um, reminders on our social media feeds or even like, hey, you know, you liked these pants. Maybe you'd like these pants too, or maybe you'd want to watch this show next. The idea of being able to take, you know, use quantum computing and artificial intelligence to take what I might do or Mike might do on a daily basis and then same day create a custom made television show about our lives and stream it for us that night is really dark. It's, it is, yeah. in fact, very anxiety inducing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think of another AI film, uh, Blade Runner where the lines between humans and machines start to blur, right? That's mm -hmm. another sort of trope, but it doesn't feel like a trope anymore for some reason. It actually feels like it it's upon us. Well, bots aren't taking human form yet, are they? Not to either of your knowledge, or I hope. <laughs> Negative. Mm. I mean, we've seen humanoid robots like in Ex Machina, so That's true. there's that. So, do you think that we're there now? I mean, are we are we there on that on that precipice? Uh, is this are we approaching Blade Runner? Uh, I don't think so. Not right now. Maybe in thirty years or forty years or three years or three. Years. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, Lauren, I understand you're a fan of, of films, a few films where we're sort of like in Blade Runner, people start to develop feelings for AI or uh, vice versa. Feelings. They always get in the way. <laughs> well, for me, the movie Her really comes to mind. And I think uh. in a lot of ways that film was prescient. It came out 10 years ago, it was directed by Spike Jones. It starred Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson. And the premise is that this man who is still heartbroken by his divorce becomes very emotionally attached to this um, AI operating system named Samantha. And then, you know, he walks around wearing these little these little earbuds in his ear, having a conversation with the Samantha OS. But it looks like he's kind of walking around talking to himself. And this was, you know, years before AirPods, which is what we all do now. Uh, and at the time, you know, we, we probably looked at this character and the way he was acting and some of his affect. And we were like, oh, gosh, that sounds like this looks so dystopian. And this is like what we all do now. Um, and we talked to our AIs, you know, we talked to our voice assistants and that sort of thing. But, but this one was actually quite intelligent. And then eventually the Samantha OS becomes obsolete, right? She starts, she stops getting upgrades. She starts fading out. Mm -hmm. And he is in some ways just as heartbroken when that happens. But at that point, he's ready to re-engage with the, the real world. Um, and that movie makes me think a lot about the ways in which we use uh, technology as a bridge between our real life experiences and how it does feel emotional in many ways to us, I think. Uh, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, Mike, I have to raise something with you. Uh, I know that we have something in common, and that is uh, a, a love of a certain 2005 film called Idiocracy. That's right. <laughs> Share the premise briefly for those who haven't seen it. Okay. Idiocracy, starring our old friend Luke Wilson and Maya Rudolph. Um, Luke oh, Wilson. It's so good. Is I'm running, I'm playing a... it in my head now, and it's just so funny. <laughs> Luke Wilson plays a uh, very average guy in the U.S. military, and he is volunteered for an experiment where he and Maya Rudolph, who is a sex worker in the film, get frozen, and they're going to wake them up in a year, and they're going to see if this new like cryogenic preservation system that the military has come up with works. Uh, as soon as they go under, the project gets abandoned and they end up sleeping for 500 years. When they wake up, society has devolved to the point where everybody who is smart has decided to not have children and everybody who is less smart has been uh, reproducing at an accelerated rate and society kind of crumbles and they end up waking up in this world that looks like a, a sort of a hyper commercialized, very dumbed down version of our world, filled with trash, filled with bad food, filled with crazy inflation. And they are the smartest people on earth. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> Talk about your dystopian nightmares. Let's hear a clip. I think we heard part of this in our intro as well, but it's just so ridiculous. Tastes like Gatorade. Is that that Brondo stuff? They're watering crops with a sports drink? Mike, I was I was a little surprised that Brondo wouldn't do the trick on the uh, on the greenery there. Um, I mean, it's got what plants crave. I, that's what I hear. Yeah, uh, <laughs> obviously, this is a satire, but like maybe how far off is it? I I, I ask that sort. I can't say that earnestly, and yet when you <laughs> when you watch the movie, I don't know. You you just start to get the feeling that maybe we're closer than even we realize. Yes. Really good satire is really good because it cuts very close to the truth. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So the thing about this movie that really makes me feel like we may be headed there is that um, we do rely on mass media and computers around us to make a lot of decisions for us. Right. So when Spotify starts recommending albums to me that I know I don't like uh, and then I turn on the television and it's showing me shows that I think are terrible uh, and I'm like, who watches this? Who listens to this? Uh, you know, and my Twitter feed is filled with news stories that are just ridiculous. I, uh, I feel like I'm living in idiocracy. <laughs> I yeah. really do. So we, we've been hitting on some of the darker places AI might go, but it'd be fun to end on a lighter note. I wonder if I could ask you sort of wild card question, uh, what are you individually hopeful for that AI can accomplish? Maybe something you wish AI could do for you personally. Uh, no judgment, Lauren. We'll start with you. 
I would say, honestly, um, if AI could help me manage like my scheduling and my email inbox a little bit better, that would be mm. great. I would welcome that. On a broader level, I would love to see, and this is something we track at Wired too, um, you know, more advancements in healthcare through AI and the ability for people to get more accurate or better or faster diagnoses or treatments. Um, this is like, you know, real pie in the sky stuff, but make it more accessible to people who don't have good access to healthcare. I think that would that would be incredible. That would be one of my hopes for AI. Mike, top of your hope list, wish list. Uh, I would love it if I could train an AI to buy concert tickets for me. Have you ever? Been <laughs> oh, concert tickets now, yeah, now, yeah. I was. I spent an hour on Ticketmaster trying to get these to, and nothing. It just it was impossible. Were you about to say Taylor Swift? I was not. Oh, okay. <laughs> you were. Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah no, I've been yeah. there. I've been there, David. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're thinking, uh, you're thinking this could help you get past the Ticketmaster wall, Mike. Yeah, or, or at least just so I don't have to waste my time. You know, I, I know that y'all like to give recommendations on your podcast, Gadget Lab. Uh, but before we let you go, what about some predictions here? AI has risen. What's our world looking like 10 years from now, oh. in the year 2033? Robo-taxis. Robo-taxis. I've taken two rides in these totally driver-free robo-taxis, and I am I'm kind of blown away. Yeah, it's it's tough to really explain unless you live in a city where they're testing. And, you know, right now they're testing in some pretty big cities. Uh, San Francisco is one, Los Angeles, Austin, Texas. If you come to these cities, you will see literally dozens of them if you walk around for an hour, just cars with steering wheels with nobody in them. You know, eventually in the next couple of years, they're going to be replaced by basically large autonomous minivans with no steering wheel, no driver's seat, but two bench seats, one in the front, one in the back that face each other with a, you know, sort of a table in the middle. So you can sit and have a conversation with four or five of your friends while you travel from point A to point B. So it's very early days, but they do have the potential to make traveling around on our roads in a car much more pleasurable. We've been talking with Mike Calori, a senior editor at Wired, Lauren Good, senior writer at Wired. They also co-host Wired's Gadget Lab podcast, available wherever fine podcasts are served. Mike, Lauren, thanks so much for joining us for Business Wars. Great to have you. Of course. Thank you. From Wondery, this is episode four of The Rise of AI for Business Wars. I'm your host, David Brown. Kelly Kyle produced this episode. Our interview episode producer is Peter Arcuni. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Edited and produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Additional audio assistance by Sergio Enriquez. Dave Schilling is our producer. Our senior managing producer is Ryan Lohr. Matt Gant is our managing producer. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie for Wondering. I'm Reid Hoffman. And I'm Aria Finger. If you're interested in learning about how technology and humanity can come together to make a better future, then Possible is for you. We invite ambitious builders and deep thinkers like Trevor Noah, Kara Swisher, Sam Altman, and so many more. Help us sketch out the brightest version of the future and what it will take to get there. If you want to be part of the future today, then subscribe to Possible wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again to all the folks at Wondery for asking us to be on the Business Wars podcast and for letting us share it with you all. Now we're going to end this episode the way we end all of our Gadget Lab episodes with our recommendations. So I'm talking now, which means, Lauren, you get to go first. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to recommend Classy. What is Classy? Keep it Classy, folks. Classy is actually a podcast from Pineapple Street Studios. It's hosted and produced by Jonathan Menhipar, and it is about class but really it's about money and it's about class wars it's the way that we interpret money the value of money the way that we judge people consciously or otherwise around money uh, the way that we sort of climb to different statures in society and strive for more money the way that rich people try really hard not to be jerks or are very sensitive to the idea that they might be jerks the way that food 
sets us apart, uh, the way that clothing sets us apart. It's a fascinating podcast. And the thread line throughout is really Jonathan's own personal story. But he also talks to friends and colleagues and former colleagues and sociologists and other experts about their experience with money and class wars. It's totally binge-worthy. I'm three episodes in. The three episodes I've listened to so far are the introductory episode, where Jonathan talks to a sociologist who really makes Jonathan question his own assumptions about wealth. He asks, are rich people bad people? And tries to answer that question. (laughs) Uh, I listened to an episode that's about food. Jonathan and a friend go to a really high-end restaurant in Manhattan. They spend $350 on, you know, bits of vegetables and stuff and talk about how uncomfortable some of these fine dining experiences are for people. They like they zero in on um, gremolata uh, as an example of something that they see on the menu. And they're like, what is this? And we have to ask and it's uncomfortable. And why are we paying so much money for this food and broader issues of food and how people who grow up in working class or middle class backgrounds have a totally different experience of food than other people. There's an episode with Jarvis Cocker from Pulp. My man. Where he talks about the origins of the song Common People. Yeah. Uh, but also about his own upbringing and his own journey as an artist in and out of a working class environment and then joining the jet set crowd and ultimately determining where his comfort zone is. It's fascinating. So I highly recommend Classy from Pineapple Street Studios. That sounds awesome. I, I think about this stuff all the time, so I'm way in. I'm, I'm in already. It's almost impossible not to think about this stuff all the time. <laughs> and it's uncomfortable and discomforting. Uh, and I think that that's what Jonathan does a good job of picking at in this podcast. That's great. D- does he live in San Francisco or does he live in New York? No, he well, he is a New Yorker. He's a New York media guy, okay. which is part of his identity now that he grapples with because yeah. we're often seen as media elites or we rub elbows with the elites. But he also talks about with his buddy Chris when they go out to this fancy Manhattan restaurant about how Chris grew up in New Jersey and Jonathan lives in Jersey now with his wife and uh, Jersey gets a bad rap. Sure. So he probably doesn't share that information with too many people. Uh, Well, he shares it on this podcast. (laughs) So a lot of people know that now. Secrets out. Yeah. So that is Classy from Pineapple Street Studios. Awesome. Thank you. Mike, what's your recommendation? I'm going to recommend a film. It is called Past Lives. It's a new movie. It's out now. Uh, You can see it in theaters, I think. You can also rent it. I rented it on a streaming platform. I think I paid like five or six dollars to watch it last night. Uh, It's a great movie. It's a drama. It is the directorial film debut from the director Celine Song. Uh, It is a beautiful moving romance. Uh, It's about two people who, who meet in South Korea. Uh, around 10 or 12 years old. And then it flash forwards, fast forwards. <laughs> it flashes forwards. Smash cuts. <laughs> uh, 12 years into their early adulthood uh, when they reconnect online and then they disconnect from each other. And then they reconnect again a full decade later when they're in their 30s. Oh so, gosh, old. Yeah, I know, old, right? <laughs> um, but it's it's a really great movie about like the immigrant experience and about the experience of being disconnected from your roots and from your culture and bridging that gap and the feelings it can bring up and also just about long lost unrequited love. Uh, it's a wonderful movie. It's very slow. It's very quiet. The performances are amazing. It'll probably win all the Oscars this year because there are so few movies coming out right now. Either that or we're going to get like this flood of movies at the end of the year that's that are, you know, that are going to get promoted when all the strikes are over. But um, right now it is uh, a great movie to watch if you're craving something that is different from like, you know, the standard action star driven fare. Mm, It's really great. Yeah. After the summer of spectacle. The summer of spectacle. Big, loud movies and concerts and sporting events. Yeah. This sounds a lot quieter. And shout out to Greta Lee, the actor mm-hmm. who is on uh, one of your favorite shows, Morning Show. Uh-huh. And yeah. um, one of our- She's great. She's Stella on The Morning Show. Yep. Yeah. One of our one of our mutual favorites, which is um, Russian Doll. She's also in that show as mm-hmm. well. She's the lead in the movie. Okay. And she's amazing. She's so good. Cool. And where yeah. did you see this? Did on, you go to the theater? On my couch. Oh, which service? I don't. I don't go to movie theaters anymore. Why not? Because all Bed the people. Bugs? It's just oh, uh, people. Yeah. yeah, those. Yeah. All right. I'm a media elite. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there could be a whole classy episode about this. So did you, like Apple TV or like what? 
I think we rented Prime? it on. I think we rented it from the Bezos machine the from, Bezos from Amazon. Machine. I think. Okay. I'm not entirely. I can't really remember. Cool, but you think this is going to be up for Oscars? <laughs> Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Big, big splash. Uh, it's got like certified fresh Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's a big movie. It's gonna anyway. You should see it now before everybody's talking about it, so that you can be the cool one. All right, Past Lives. I'm totally gonna watch it. It's great. The last it. movie you advised that I watch was. Um... What was it? The worst <sighs> person in the world. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes and it just destroyed me it did i was I, re- I was taking time off from work i was on this like i was in this cabin and off the, like the remote coast of maine by myself and i was just devastated mm-hmm. so good though mm-hmm. yeah i've i'm obsessed with that movie i think i've watched it like five times now so i'm gonna watch this but will i be devastated probably yeah okay yeah, that's great. Right, good to know. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Enjoy. Thank you for that recommendation. Though, truly, thank you. You're welcome. All right. That's our show. Thanks to Michael for devastating me. <laughs> thanks to David Brown and everyone at Wondery for this collaboration. You can listen to more of the Business Wars podcast, including their entire Rise of AI series, wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Wondery app, or you can subscribe to W Plus on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to all of you for listening, especially if you've listened this long. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on um, the artist formerly known as Twitter. Uh, we're in lots of places now. Just check the show notes. Our producer is the excellent Boone Ashworth, and we'll be back next week. Hackers and cyber criminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. Click here every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. From PR.